This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, good morning. Uh, My name is Ted Sin, and um, it's my responsibility this morning to teach from this passage, uh, this long and somewhat peculiar and often mystified section of Scripture. And uh, there's two more passages in 1 John, uh, one in chapter 4 and one in chapter 5, that will be related to these same topics in and around the Antichrist, in and around Antichrist. And so what I plan to do this morning is I plan to give three points that kind of introduce the three biggest ideas in John on this topic, and then we're just going to keep moving rather quickly. So the sermon uh, may feel disjointed to you. Uh, It may feel like we dive into something and then we we exit out of it. You're not sure how what comes next related to the past. Uh, Again, I apologize for the reality that, that, that that might happen and uh, just tell you, please keep coming through the fall, and we'll continue to work through this book, and Lord willing, these things should, uh, by God's grace, develop uh, in our hearts and minds more and more, okay? Now, before we jump in, I want to rev- I want to remind you and spend a little time reviewing with you that the title of our series through First John is Confidence, and we've chosen this title because commentators agree that John's main purpose, John's main goal in writing to his original audience, uh, his main goal was to build their confidence, and this is going to sound peculiar, but he wants to build their confidence in Christianity. And what I mean by that is this, John primarily wanted to build their confidence in Jesus. He primarily wanted to build their confidence in Christ, but he secondarily Uh, wants to build their confidence in their faith in Christ. Uh, He wants to help them not just see that Christ is the foundation of Christianity, but that they are believing in Christ, that they do have faith in Christ. In the past, we've used this illustration, the illustration of sitting in a chair uh, when talking about faith. Uh, It's simple. It's not very exciting. 
but it is somewhat effective or even fairly effective at communicating the point. Uh, Think about it. In order to benefit from a chair, in order to, to relax in a chair, in order to find rest in a chair, two things have to happen. Uh, First, uh, you have to understand and calculate certain things about the trustworthiness of the chair. And second, you have to actually trust the chair. You have to actually sit down in the chair. So biblically, faith includes both beliefs and believing. Faith includes the understanding of certain truths And then the sitting down in, the relaxing in, the resting in those truths. Obviously, some Christians are good at the belief side and some Christians are good at the believing side. But biblical maturity is having sound doctrine that you live in. And so again, John's primary goal in writing 1 John is to first and foremost Remind his audience of the trustworthiness of Jesus. If you use our metaphor, our illustration, Jesus is symbolized by this incredible chair that you can look at it, you can study it, you can think about it, you can understand it. But faith, biblical faith, is not just articulating things about Jesus, but it's sitting down in Jesus. It's resting in Jesus. It's benefiting from relationship with Jesus. And so John, in this book, is going back and forth between the trustworthiness of Christ and the evidence in a person's life when they're sitting in Jesus. And that's why we've named the series Confidence. Awkwardly, confidence in Christianity. More specifically, confidence in Christ and confidence in the faith that he has given me by his Holy Spirit. And so the text this morning gives us very direct clues as to why John has confidence as his primary goal, his primary purpose in writing the original audience. Our text tells us that the gospel community to whom John writes is being influenced by and harassed by and attacked by previous members of the community who have moved away from the community, who have moved away from the gospel, And now they're infiltrating the community and trying to bring John's audience away from that community and into apostasy. And evidently, uh, these, quote, antichrists, this is what John calls them in verse 18, evidently they're trying to shake uh, the original audience's faith, first in Jesus and second in their experience of Jesus. And so John writes 1 John to boost his audience's confidence in Christ and in their faith in Christ because he's directly combating the effects of those he calls the Antichrist. Okay? So with all that being said about the book, all that being said about the series, all that being said about this passage, I want to jump in now and I want to see three things about the quote Antichrist. I want to see three things in this, in this portion of the letter about those who are attacking the church's confidence in Christianity, okay? I want to see the multiple identities of the Antichrist. I want to see the eternal consequences of the Antichrist. And I want to see the Christian's defense against the Antichrist, okay? First, 
John alludes to the multiple identities of the Antichrist, and it's, it's written exactly how I want it to be written on the screen behind me. It's written exactly like that because it matters. It's written exactly like that because it's important. So, so looking at how it's written on the screen, the the in the Antichrist and the S in the Antichrist are in parentheses. And we purposefully named the points, we purposefully wrote out the points this way to show you biblically that the V and the plural S are optional. Look at the text. John writes of Antichrist, singular without the article in verse 18. John writes of many Antichrists, plural without the article in verse 18. John writes of the Antichrist, singular with the article in verse 22. And so while all of the Antichrist, using parentheses, while they all have one thing in common, uh, John in our text alludes to the biblical fact that there are multiple identities of the Antichrist. And all of them are trying to attack the church's confidence in Christianity. When we hear the term antichrist, especially if you grew up in a Baptist home, like me, you tend to automatically think of the antichrist. We tend to automatically think of the spiritual arch enemy of Jesus that is in the Bible. And we forget and we don't realize that John clearly teaches that there have been and there are many human antichrists who wittingly or unwittingly have or are accomplishing the devil's desires in the devil's war against Jesus. Look at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. Okay, the last hour is John's phrase for this present age. This present age uh, in the New Testament that is between Jesus' past ascension into heaven and Jesus' future return, the date of which is only known by the Father. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist singular is coming, so now many Antichrists plural have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And so again, the Bible teaches that Jesus has a primary enemy. In chapter four of this letter, John is gonna call that enemy the spirit of the Antichrist. But additionally, there are many human Antichrists. And verse 19 makes this really clear. Really clear that there have been and presumably are many human Antichrists. Look at verse 19. They, referencing the Antichrist of verse 18. This is 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So John is telling his audience, the people who used to be part of our community, who left our community and left the gospel, they were never really and spiritually part of our community. And John says further, they're antichrists. Because they have in common with the Antichrist the fact that they deny Jesus as the Christ. Look at verse 22. Who is, the, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Now, this should become more clear to us as we walk through 1 John in the weeks to come. But for now, I just want you to realize this. One, there is the spirit of the Antichrist. Verse 18, 
Verse 22, chapter four, verse three. Two, there are many human antichrists, verse 18. They're familiar with the gospel community, verse 19. They try to deceive current members of the community, verse 26. They try to get them to deny that Jesus is the Christ, verse 22. And we're gonna learn in chapter four that all of the activity of the many human antichrists, all of that activity is in some way brought about by, influenced by, willed by, and empowered by the Antichrist. Verse 18, verse 22, chapter four, verses one and following. Okay, I just want us to see in our first point that, that, that John does not want us to take the term Antichrist and put it into one box called Satan. He, he wants us to understand the biblical teaching that there are multiple identities of the Antichrist. Okay, second for this morning, John clearly states the eternal consequences of the Antichrist. Again, notice the parentheses. In these parentheses, by writing it this way, I mean Antichrist, I mean many Antichrists, and I mean the Antichrist. So here again, the commonality between all Antichrists. It is the denial of Jesus as the Christ, verse 22. Antichrist is the, de- is the denial of and the disowning of the truth and the belief the historic man Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one sent from heaven by God the Father into the world to save the Father's people and to save the Father's world. The message of Antichrist is not this. There is no God. There is no supreme being. The message of Antichrist is not this, that the exceptional man known as Jesus never lived. The message of Antichrist is this, that exceptional man Jesus was not the Christ. He was not the Messiah. He was not the one sent by God into the world to save the Father's children and to save the Father's world. Antichrists are not atheists. Satan knows full well that there is a God and that he is not that God. Antichrists are not atheists. They're theists, believers in God, who profess and live as if Christ is not that God, is not that Messiah. So we know from John's gospel, we know from John's other letters, we know from John's book of Revelation that the many human antichrists, verse 18 and verse 19, were motivated by a desire to avoid persecution and martyrdom. So Christians, followers of Jesus, in John's day, like our day, were being persecuted, were being martyred by Jews and by Romans. And they were being persecuted and martyred because they believed in Jesus. But more specifically, they were suffering because they believed that Jesus was the only way to the Father. And the message of the many human antichrists was this. This is their message. Just deny the messiahship of Jesus and you won't be persecuted. Even more than that, just deny the exclusivity of the messiahship of Jesus and you won't die. So with that in mind, look at verses 22 and 23. John writes, who is the liar 
But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. And so I want you to think for a second. What would you expect John to write at the end of verse 22? You'd expect John to simply write, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Son. After all, he just said they deny Jesus as the Christ. But John writes that the, that the denial of Jesus as the Christ is the denial of the Father and the Son. Why does he write verse 22 this way? Verse 23 tells us why. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So listen again, here's the bottom line. The many human antichrists were teaching and will teach that you can have the Father without the Son. The many human antichrists were teaching and will teach that you can be in relationship with God without believing in and without professing faith in Jesus as the Christ. The many human antichrists in some way led by the antichrist were telling the first century church, you should simply deny Jesus as the Christ and you will avoid persecution and you will be more hip. It's so narrow-minded to just believe in Jesus. And so John is writing that there are point to eternal consequences of the Antichrist. John says, verse 22, if you deny Jesus, you deny the Father. John says, verse 23, if you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. And since those who abide in the Son and the Father have eternal life, verses 24 and 25, John is saying, if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you may experience less persecution in this age, but you forfeit eternal life. And John is, is saying there are eternal consequences of the Antichrist. Is that me causing that problem? I don't know where I was, but I'll pick up here. <laughs> I want us to stop and realize that the spirit of the Antichrist, the arch enemy of Jesus, uses the same strategy in our day and age that he has used for 2,000 years. Satan's strategy is not to turn people to atheism. He's fine with it if that's what you choose, but that is not his main strategy. And Satan's main strategy is not to turn people to Satanism. He's fine with that if you choose that, but that is not his main strategy. His main strategy is to get you and me to deny that Jesus is the Christ. To deny that Jesus is the only way to the Father and the only way to eternal life. He frankly doesn't really care if we believe it for ourselves as long as we don't believe it for everybody. Think about the message of the culture in which we live. Think about the message, the predominant message of the culture in which we live, whether it's the Disney Channel, whether it is popular celebrities, whether it is winsome philosophy professors, whether it is the dumbest Miss America candidate that ever lived. What is the primary, not all are dumb, I didn't say that, I said the dumbest that lived. What is the primary message of our age? Tolerance, inclusivity, sincerity. Christians are told that they're dumb to believe in Jesus. Excuse me, I, I wrote that wrong. Christians are not told that they're dumb to believe in Jesus. That's what we were told 30 years ago. We're told that we're narrow-minded if we believe in Jesus as the only way to the Father. Further, we're told that we're rude and unloving when we try to convince others of the reality that Jesus is the only way. 
pay attention for a few weeks. Pay attention for a few weeks and see how our culture, the world, the devil orchestrates. See if our culture doesn't champion tolerance, inclusivity, and sincerity. Our culture says it's okay for everyone to believe what they believe. What's important is not what we believe in, but how sincerely we believe it. Have you heard that? That's antichrist. And John's saying, look, there are eternal consequences for you and for the people you love who believe that. I'm not opposed to inclusivity, tolerance, and sincerity. I'm not asking us to be sort of arrogantly intolerant, snobbishly exclusive, and sincerely insincere. I'm just saying that when we make those three the ultimate values of our worldview, we're saying that the object of my faith is not as important as the intensity of my faith. And John said, oh, it's the exact opposite. If you use the chair metaphor, when we champion as the most important reality, tolerance, inclusivity, and sense, and, and, uh, and, and, um, and, and, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Thank you. I'm still getting sick. <laughs> Sincerity. When we, when we champion that reality, we're saying the chair is, not, my, is that, not that important. My belief in the chair is important. And the Bible and common sense says to us, if the chair can't hold you, the chair can't hold you. It's possible to be sincere, but sincerely wrong. And so our humanistic culture puts the emphasis on the human when it presumes that the object of my faith is not as important as the passion in my faith. But good news, the Bible puts the emphasis on Jesus and says really the passion of your faith is not very important at all compared to the object of your faith. So think about it. If you're tired and you see a chair and you don't know if that chair can hold you and you worry about the sturdiness of that chair, but let's say it's a perfectly good chair. Will it hold you when you sit down? Of course it will. Because the object of your faith is far more important than the size of your faith. And the Bible says Christianity is like this. You start out trusting Jesus a little bit and you sit down and fall in love and you trust him more and more. But if you're utterly convinced that a chair can hold you, even though your friends have removed all the support in the chair and they know it's gonna fall, if you're utterly convinced it will support you and it can't support you, does your passionate faith in the chair cause it to hold you up when you plop down in it? No. The sincerity of our faith is not as important as the object of our faith. What happens is tons of faith and something unworthy of our faith becomes zero faith when our life comes crashing down. And then we pick something else to have faith in. So look back to 1 John, look back to the text. Let me tie this in. Our culture's message that tolerance and inclusivity and sincerity, that these are the supreme values, this message is antichrist because verse 22, it denies that Jesus is the Christ, the object of faith. And John is just saying to us, there are eternal consequences when we deny that Jesus is the Christ. Denying Jesus is denying the Son. It means you don't have the Father. 
It means you don't have eternal life. Okay, so first in our text, John alludes to the multiple identities of the Antichrist, and then John states the eternal consequences of the Antichrist. And finally, John points to the Christian's defense against the Antichrist. Okay, now there's multiple ways to apply this text to our lives, and we're gonna get to some of these later. We could talk about the fact that we were Antichrist prior to our conversion. That's true. Uh, We could talk about the fact uh, that we're still now in some way Antichrist, Uh, when we idolize the things of this world and when we live like the world. That's still true. We could talk about the fact that we're still in some way antichrist when we're religious. When we try to be our own savior and don't rest in the savior that is Jesus. All of those would be fair applications of this text and I do wanna talk about those in coming weeks. But I think the application more important for us this morning is the one most obvious in the passage. It's this, what is our defense against being revealed in time as antichrist? The people in the community prior to leaving the community didn't think of themselves in the past as antichrist. What is our defense against verse 19 one day being true of us? As we said last week, a little bit of humility and a little bit of reflection will tell us it's possible that every one of us could walk away from the message of Jesus and the message of Christ. The statistics are absolutely staggering in regards to the number of kids who grow up in a church, go to college, and to their surprise and to the surprise of their parents, they walk away from the faith. The statistics are staggering how many people in middle life leave the church and enter into a more pluralistic thinking about the world. Staggering. I used to play golf Uh, every now and then, maybe four or five times a year with a man who led a faithful Bible-believing church, a church far larger than this one for about 15 years. The last time I played golf with him was after he left the church. Actually, he was fired from the church. And these are his words. I came to the realization that it's crazy to believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father and eternal life. A little bit of humility and a little bit of reflection would tell us, hey, It's possible that verse 19 could be me. One of my best friends in seminary, the best preacher in the seminary, who planted a faithful gospel-centered church out west where no one else could plant them. Now, because his wife drags him, goes to a very liberal church and would argue for the sincerity of your faith being more important than the object of your faith. And John is writing to current members of a faithful church and he is primarily telling them, this is your defense against the Antichrist. This is your defense against becoming verse 19. You see what I'm saying? The defense against becoming Antichrist is is, is found on two levels. First, the genuine Christian has been anointed by the Holy One. And second, the genuine Christian lets the gospel abide in them. So let's go first. The genuine Christian has been anointed by the Holy One. So throughout the passage, John has been contrasting those who have left the church and those who are still in the church. Look at verse 20. Keep in mind, verse 19, John has written about the Antichrist's departure from the community. Verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. 
21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no truth, no, excuse me, no lie is of the truth. And so in verse 20, John is talking about the spirit of Jesus that indwells Christians. The Holy One is a, is a title for Jesus in the New Testament. This word for anoint in, the, anoint in the New Testament is always a reference to the Holy Spirit. John is saying they walked away, verse 19, but verse 20, Jesus gave you his Holy Spirit. You see how John says, don't put your confidence in you holding on? Put your confidence in what Jesus has done for you. Look at verse 26, it's another contrast. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Verse 27, but the anointing that you receive from him, that's the Holy Spirit, abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it taught you, abide in him. Now listen, John is not saying that believers don't need teachers. John is teaching in this very passage. John is gonna say in chapter four that the Holy Spirit uses gifted teachers to teach believers. John is saying that the original audience doesn't need the Antichrist to teach them something new and something spectacular beyond Jesus. John specifically said in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And so first, the genuine Christian's defense against the Antichrist is found in the fact that Jesus' spirit lives in them and causes them to know, understand, value, and believe the truth. John says the number one defense against us becoming Antichrist is the Holy Spirit will show us that that the teaching of Antichrist is lies. I wish I could tell us to do something, but John doesn't tell us anything to do at this point. He just says it's quite simple and it's a matter of fact. The genuine Christian's defense against Antichrist is the ongoing saving work of Jesus in them by the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. But second, and secondarily, how do we experience that work of the Holy Spirit? Said differently, while the Holy Spirit is primarily saving us, secondarily, what are we doing while he's defending us? Look at verse 24 and verse 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he has made to us, eternal life. If you'll read through the entire text, you're gonna see that verse 24 is the only verse in the whole passage that tells the reader to do anything. There's a lot of teaching in regards to those who have left and there's a lot of truth about the Holy Spirit. But the one thing believers are told to do while the Spirit is defending us, while the Spirit is saving us, while the Spirit is teaching us is this, letting the gospel letting the good news of Jesus Christ, letting that which they heard from the beginning, let the grace of God abide in them. Letting the grace of God make its house in them. Letting the gospel of Jesus take up residence in them. And John says, as we let the gospel message abide in us, we too abide in the Son and in the Father, and we have the promise that he promised to us, eternal life. 
Now, what we're going to do is we're going to sing about Christ, and we're going to talk more about what it looks like to abide in Christ when we take communion. But for now, the simplest thing for me to say about our defense against Antichrist, the simplest thing for me to say about what we're doing as the Holy Spirit is defending us is to say that we are to be extremely, intentionally, and repeatedly pro-Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that you have done all things necessary to save us. We thank you that even, again, in this passage where we see those realities outside of us more strong, uh, stronger excuse me, than us, that when we see these things, our hope is not in us doing something or believing something, but our hope is in your work in us. And we thank you that this passage tells us what to do to enjoy your work, to experience your work, to even accelerate your work. We thank you that this passage reminds us yet again to not go on to something new and better, but to keep our home in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are the only Christ. You are the only Messiah from the Father. You are the only one who mediates between God and man. You are the only one that can restore our relationship with the Father and give us eternal life in your death. And we thank you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to your ministry in us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would make uh, that which is false uh, look and be false to us and make that which is true look and be true to us. We pray for you to powerfully be at work in us. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus.